We've been in Matthew's Gospel for Selected Scriptures over and over again, and I just absolutely love the Gospels. I love to read them, and I love to preach from the Gospels to stop and think about how much Scripture we have about that brief 33-year period of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we're here in Matthew chapter number 3, which has several wonderful themes to pull from in this story. But really, this chapter, the theme of it, is all about Jesus. The early part of the chapter, we see John the Baptist is proclaiming the message, Jesus is coming. He's saying, repent and be baptized. But the reason he's calling people to repentance is because Jesus is about to show up on the scene. John then in his preaching rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees and says, the Messiah is coming and you are in danger of fire judgment. Jesus comes and John points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends on Jesus, and then the voice, the Father, speaks from heaven, putting the emphasis on Jesus and saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I think we'll have this verse in here coming up in a little bit, but John the Baptist is such a great picture for each and every one of us that the goal of our life should be not to receive the glory or the accolades for what we do, but simply to point people to Jesus. And John the Baptist, as we'll see, he preached in the wilderness. He had great crowds that came to see him. Some of them were there to genuinely repent and get ready for the Messiah to come. Some of them were simply there for the show. But John the Baptist had every opportunity to claim glory for himself, to get the focus on himself. But when they came and asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? Gospel of John tells us that he specifically told them, I am not he. I am not the Messiah. I'm the one who's come to prepare the way for the Messiah, to point to him. And the theme of our life could be what John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And whatever it is that God uses us to do, it can be easy to like the accolades and to like the compliments when people compliment you for the song you sang, the sermon you preached, or the spirituality you are living out. But each and every time, it should be the goal of our hearts to take whatever praise comes to us and simply reflect it back to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter, begins with the genealogy of Jesus and the announcement of the virgin birth. Matthew chapter 2, we see the story of Herod and the wise men and how Joseph and Mary had to take baby Jesus and flee into Egypt. And after the death of Herod, they returned to Israel and ended up in Nazareth. It's interesting to note that in most of the Gospels, there's barely any record of the time period between when Jesus was born and then when he began his earthly ministry. I believe it's in Luke that it fills in the story of Jesus at 12 years old in the temple saying that he must be about his father's business and how he was already able to contend and discuss the things of the law with the people in the temple and they were astonished at the words of wisdom that this 12 year old could speak. But Matthew jumped straight from Mary and Joseph moving back to Nazareth all the way to the launching of Jesus' earthly ministry, which we believe was sometime around his 30th birthday. Sometime around that age period, Jesus left the carpenter shop where he had faithfully served and began to launch his earthly ministry. And Matthew's gospel presents Jesus 
as king. And a king in those days always had a forerunner, always had someone who would go before to make the announcement that the king is coming. You need to straighten things up. You need to make his path plain. The king is about to arrive. And that is the role that John the Baptist plays in the arrival of King Jesus onto the scene to start his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 3, let's begin in verse number 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as we'll talk about a little bit this morning, John had a unique ministry at a unique period in time where he was sent to proclaim the Messiah is coming. Prepare for the arrival of the Messiah. And the message he was preaching is not an unfamiliar one in the scriptures. It's a message of repent. He would tell people, repent and be baptized, for the Messiah is coming. Salvation has never come through baptism in the scriptures, and we don't believe that people were being saved by the water, and we believe that John's baptism was a little bit different than the way that baptism is carried out today. In the New Testament, after the Messiah has already come, Jesus told them to preach the gospel to every creature, and then in the New Testament, we see after people were saved, they are baptized immersed in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism does not save us, but it proclaims to the community, to our loved ones, to everyone around us, I am not ashamed of Jesus. I have received the Messiah. John's baptism was the Messiah is about to come. You need to repent in order to receive him and be baptized as an outward signal to those around you that you are willing to repent and receive the Messiah when he comes. So it's slightly different than the baptism we carry out today, but it carried with it the idea of repentance. John's baptism was called the baptism of repentance. And as we've preached and talked about a lot before, people like to argue about repentance and what does it mean and is it necessary? Well, we can talk about what it means biblically, but we cannot deny the fact that the Word of God says repentance is necessary for salvation. John the Baptist said, repent. Jesus said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And the Apostle Paul said in Acts 17.30, after the work of Jesus was already completed, and he went on his missionary journey proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, he said, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The word repent in the Greek carries the definition of a change of mind and a change of heart. And it carries with it the idea of to turn and of a new direction. And we are not saved because we stop sinning. We are not saved because we reach a certain level of grief over our sin. But in order to truly be saved by grace through faith, it takes an intellectual understanding of the gospel and also a decision within our heart, within our soul, and within our mind that we will turn away from our doubt, from our unbelief, from trying to earn our way to heaven through good works, or whatever we had thought before, whatever we were trying to do before, we have to look at our own ideas and anything that's contrary to the Word of God and say, I repent, I turn away from that, and I turn to Jesus Christ. And then when we come to Him in repentance and faith, we are saved only through His grace, not through any works that we can do, not through our baptism, not through attending a church, or any other reason other than the fact that we say, Jesus, I want you to save me, and His righteousness is then applied to our record. 
Now, the Bible does tell us in the New Testament through the, gospel, through the epistles of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and much of the New Testament that if we are genuinely born again, there should be an outward change. There should be some evidence of the child of God. If you are claiming, I know God, I am God's child, then we should be able to look at your life and see some evidence that you're actually behaving like a child of God. It doesn't mean Christians aren't capable of sin. It doesn't mean Christians aren't even capable of continuing continuing in sin, there with a hard head and being carnal like they were at the church in Corinth. But one of the evidences of salvation is that if you are God's child and you continue unrepentantly in towards sin, is that God will chastise you. The book of Hebrews says, if you have a father, you will be chastised. And if you can continue on and on in sin with no chastisement, then you do not have a father. So we don't earn our way to heaven. We don't stop sinning to get to heaven. But it takes a genuine inward change through repentance and faith. And when we turn to God, it should manifest itself through some change of direction through some good works, not that we are saved by good works, but that we show evidence that we genuinely have been saved by the good works that we do. So John said, repent. Why did he say repent? Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That phrase there, for at hand, means that it's very near. It's at the door. It's coming. It's about to arrive. And we'll try to talk for just a minute about the way that the New Testament describes the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. But what he's saying is it is at hand. And the Messiah coming was at hand. But also the final judgment and the kingdom of the Messiah that will be a literal kingdom when he reigns during the millennial reign. And then forever and ever, we could just as accurately say that is at hand as well. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know that it's going to happen. And we know that time matters not to God. And that whether it's another 2,000 years or 200 years, the kingdom of heaven is still at hand. The return of Christ is at hand in the sense that we have a very brief life and a few years to repent, to turn to Him, to receive Him, and to get ready for eternity. And whenever He comes, the fact remains, He is coming. He is coming to earth. He is coming to establish a kingdom, he is coming to execute judgment. And that is a fact, and we must be ready for it. At one place, Jesus said to them, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is within you. And some people will point to that verse and say, see, so then all of the prophecies that talk about the kingdom of God to come in the millennial, they're all allegorical. There is no actual physical kingdom. It's all a spiritual kingdom. And all of those prophecies are just allegories and none of them are literally true. We don't believe that. We believe that what Christ said was too clear. What John said in Revelation was too clear. And through Thessalonians and the Old Testament, it's clearly prophesied that the Messiah would come and that he would establish his kingdom on earth, that he would rule and reign forever, and that he would set up his throne in Jerusalem. But as a matter of fact, that was so clear and so clearly understood by the Jews that it tripped them up to understand what Jesus was trying to tell them. Because they knew that it was prophesied in the Old Testament, Messiah is going to come, he'll defeat his enemies, he will sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and before him all nations will come, all nations will be gathered, and will have to come to worship the king. So then when Jesus came on the scene and John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, behold, the Messiah is here, they turned 
turn to the here and now, and they said, we are under rule and reign by the Romans. They were under occupation. And they said, the Messiah is here, so at any moment, he's getting ready to put down our oppressors, to take away the people who have laid the burden on their back. I'm going to move this up here and see if that cuts out that feedback. We'll see if that's better. You can turn me down if, if I need to, if it comes through, comes through too loud. But they were ready for Jesus to defeat the Romans and take up his throne. Now, all of those prophecies were true, but Jesus tried to get through their heads. I'm coming at this point in time to fulfill the prophecies that say the Messiah will be the sacrificial lamb to pay for your sins. I'm going to return to heaven, and then at a day and an hour you know not, I will come back, and eventually I will return to earth and set up my kingdom then. The Old Testament hadn't specified that Jesus was going to split his comings into two separate phases, but the Old Testament did say the Messiah will rule and reign forever, and then the Old Testament also said that upon him will the iniquities of us all be laid. The idea of the sacrificial lamb who would die for our sins was contained in the Old Testament as well. It wasn't spelled out exactly how it would go, but when the Messiah was here, he kept trying to tell them, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight. So he could accurately say to them, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is within you to communicate to them, you must be born again in order to be part of the kingdom of God, while at the same time not negating what he clearly said in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, that there would come a day that Yes, he would go to heaven, as he said in the Gospel of John, I go to prepare a place for you, but if I go to prepare a place for you, I will doubtless come again and receive you, that where I am, there you may be also. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I think was John communicating this whole idea of Messiah is coming, he's going to die for your sins, you have to believe in him and receive him in order to have a part in the kingdom of God at all, but he did not negate the fact that his ultimate kingdom is coming, which will usher in the end of this current age, the end of this earth eventually as we know it. And part of what we'll see is we know that John was preaching to the Jews and he was telling them in a way that was offensive to them, that went against what they were thinking. You may be a Jew, but you're still going to have to repent or ultimately you will be on the outside of the kingdom of heaven and looking in. Let's continue in verse 3 of Matthew 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He was then fulfilling the prophecy that we see in Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So it was prophesied that Messiah would come, and it was also prophesied that there would be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Messiah. The King is coming. You must get ready for it. And that was what his goal was, his ministry was, was to prepare the way of the Lord. 
Verse 4 continues by telling us that he was the voice crying where? In the wilderness. Matthew 3 and verse 4. The same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins. And his meat was locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist truly fulfilled that role of a prophet. He lived in the wilderness. That was his home. He was dressed in the leather girdle and the camel's hair. And the Bible says what he had to eat in the wilderness was locusts and wild honey. And in many cultures, even today, I remember as a younger person hearing a missionary to Africa say that in Africa, they take the crickets and the locusts and the things like that. They pull the wings off, they fry them up, they put salt on it, and that's their popcorn. And it's actually a good source of protein. I think I'm good with my American diet leaving out that and getting my protein from other sources. But the fact remains, that's how John was surviving. And what it created was it created an interest. It created news being spread. There's a wild man out there in the wilderness being wild, and he's preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Messiah is coming, and that we need to repent, and people flocked to where John was. Many of them, yes, were going to genuinely want to repent and get ready to receive the Messiah. But I also believe many of them went and showed up to see what was going on. But their hearts were ultimately unchanged. And it's a heartbreaking fact that whether it's John the Baptist or Jesus or the church today, there will be many people who show up to see what's going on, but their heart is never ultimately changed. They are ultimately never born again and granted access to the kingdom of God. It was said of John the Baptist... Remember, they came to him and asked, are you Elijah? And you will find often they even said of Jesus, is he Elijah? Who is he calling for on the cross? Is he calling for Elijah? This comes from the prophecy in Malachi, I believe, chapter 4, where it was prophesied that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that Elijah would come and that through the prophet Elijah, he would prepare the way for the Messiah and the hearts of the fathers would be turned to the hearts of the children and that that would prepare them for receiving the Messiah. Now, a lot of people have different opinions about exactly how it worked, but just very briefly to state, Jesus said, John the Baptist is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he said plainly, he is Elijah, if you will receive it. In other words, Elijah is going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah to rule and reign. And John the Baptist is a forerunner of Jesus. And if you would listen to his message, if you would receive it, if you would repent, he would fulfill that role of Elijah by having your heart turn towards the Messiah and being granted access to the kingdom and to heaven. Now, I personally believe that that prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 was a literal prophecy about the prophet Elijah, and that if Elijah is one of the two witnesses in Revelation, then he will be fulfilling that exact prophecy and that role to preach to the nation of Israel during the tribulation period and say, the Messiah is coming. Receive him. Get ready to enter the kingdom. Some people think that that prophecy of Elijah was just a prophecy about John the Baptist and that he fulfilled it. I personally think Elijah is one of the two witnesses and hence why Jesus said John is Elijah if you will receive it and he comes in the power and spirit of Elijah. Nonetheless, that's his role. He's prophet. He's there to preach the truth. He's there to tell people repent, receive the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't, you're not going to get to go in 
to the kingdom. John chapter 3 and verse number 28. This is John the Baptist. They came before and said, Who are you? And John said, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's his message. That's his ministry. Eyes off of me and on to Jesus. I'm simply here to tell you that he's coming. It's at hand. He's almost here. So we read Matthew 3 in verse number 4, and now we'll continue in verse number 5. Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. You see here they received the message that he was saying. Repent. They confessed their sins, and in order to confess your sins, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. And we cannot come to Jesus and receive him as Savior unless we first are honest enough to look at ourselves, to look at our nature, to look at the actions we've done and say, I am guilty. I am a sinner. I cannot earn my way to heaven. Not all of it, not any of it. It all has to come through Jesus. But you see verse 5, the crowds that flocked to see where John was coming. Verse 7 continues, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The Pharisees and the Sadducees were different groups that made up the leadership of the temple and of the synagogue. They were spiritual, they were religious outwardly, but they took the brunt of the rebukes from Jesus and here from John the Baptist. They come out, no doubt, not to genuinely repent, but to see what was going on. Why are all these people flocking to the wilderness? Who is this prophet that people are speaking of? Is he going to take away our followers? Is he going to infringe on our ability to have the power, the leadership, and the influence? They come to see him, but John knows they are not there to repent. They are not there to receive the Messiah. They had the law. They knew the word of God. But these are the people who were devouring widows' houses. These are the people who were passing judgment upon people instead of showing them true mercy and grace like Jesus had said. These were the people who would sit outside of the temple and say, you have to pay an exchange rate of your money to transfer to the type of money the temple wants to receive and then would charge them exorbitant fees. And they would say, no, you can't bring your own animals to sacrifice. You have to buy the animals we provide and then would charge them an exorbitant amount of money and would line their pockets and their power by praying on the people of God who were trying to come offer a sin offering like they were commanded to do. Hence we see Jesus who was meek, who was mild, who as a lamb before the shears opened not his mouth when he paid for the sins of the world. Jesus who was loving, Jesus who went to the harlots and to the tax cheats and received them into the kingdom of God and the drunkards. But Jesus went to these people, the spiritual leaders, the ones who were respected in that day, and flipped the tables upside down and took a whip and chased them out the door 
and said, My father's house is to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves like you have made it. So just picture the scene. Just picture the prophet. And they come perhaps as a delegation expecting to be welcomed, to be given a seat of honor, to be promoted maybe. And they see John the Baptist. And his message is, O generation of vipers, you snakes, who has warned you of the wrath that is to come? You are not exempt from the wrath of God. You too are in need of repentance. You see, the announcement of the message, the Messiah is coming, or the Messiah is here, carried two different aspects, and always did in the Old Testament and the New. The one is salvation, it's hope, it's mercy, and the other is judgment. And the choice is up to you. Repent, John was saying, and receive his mercy. Or if you refuse to, you will receive his wrath. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, we point to as one of those wonderful messianic prophecies that talks about Jesus and Him bringing deliverance. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's His deliverance. That's His salvation. But the message continues. And the day of vengeance of our God. Yes, to comfort all that mourn, but the day of the vengeance of God was to be proclaimed by the arrival of the Messiah. And we should stand for truth. But we shouldn't get so caught up in standing for the truth that we forget to love people like Jesus loved people. We need to tell them judgment is coming, but God sent me to try and tell you judgment is coming because I love you and I want you to know the truth. So we should love people. But we should not get so caught up in loving people or in being afraid of being divisive or offensive to this modern day culture that we forget to tell them the Messiah carries not only the message of love and deliverance and peace, but also of vengeance and of wrath. And you must choose to receive Him or else you will fall in danger of His judgment. Let's continue in Matthew 3, verse 8. Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat, for repentance. I believe that very simply what John is saying here fits in line with the rest of what the Scriptures have to say about repentance. If you truly believe in Jesus, if you truly claim that you're His child and that you have changed, then show it with your works. Let there be a change in your life. Show evidence to God and to others that you really are His child like you claim to be. What is fruit? Fruit is what is produced. Fruit is what is shown outwardly. Fruit is what is grown. He's saying your good works, your fruit, show evidence appropriate for repentance. The word there, meet, means suitable or worthy. If you really say you want to be a child of God, you really truly say you are an Israelite, you worship Jehovah, then receive the Messiah and repent and stop doing all of these predatory things that John knew that they were doing behind the scenes. I think that's the idea that he's communicating to them there. Now look at verse number 9. And think not to say within yourselves, we have a father, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children 
unto Abraham. He knew that they valued Abraham. Remember, in the the story that Jesus told, he called paradise Abraham's bosom. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, quite literally. So they would look and say, Abraham is our father. And it's the same thing they would tell Jesus when he would say, you need to receive God as your father. They would say, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. And we'll talk about that here briefly, that Abraham received good standing with God, not through his good works, but through his faith. And his faith was evidenced by the good works and the actions that he did. So when he tells them, don't think you're Abraham's children and that gets you covered, he is really saying something to them that is incredibly offensive to them. And then Jesus continued and told them, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was the I am of the burning bush. Jesus was saying, I am Messiah. I existed before Abraham and Abraham actually believed in me by faith. But John is saying, what, what did I just tell you? You need to repent. You need to bring forth fruits that are meat for repentance. And don't chafe against that message by saying, we're Israelites. We're Abraham's children. And what he's communicating to them is just because you are Jewish does not mean you are automatically granted access to the kingdom of God. And I said last week that we believe that the New Testament church and the physical nation of Israel are two separate entities. We've not replaced Israel. We've not been molded together. But I also said we have to remember that whether you're of Israel or not, there's still only one way into heaven. There's still only one way into the kingdom of heaven that will last forever and ever when Jesus reigns in the new Jerusalem. And that is to come by faith to God through Jesus Christ. And it's offensive for him to tell them, don't think just because you're a Jew, you get to go to the kingdom. You still have to repent in order to go to the kingdom. This was not a message they were ready to receive. This was offensive to them. Then he says, for I say unto you that God is able if he wanted to. He points to the banks of the river where he'd been baptizing and says, if God wanted to, he could take these stones and raise up more children unto Abraham. God doesn't need you. You need God. You need to repent. I think what he's saying, we could look at there two different ways. In the first place, Jesus said at one point when the children were crying out and saying, Hosanna to the King of Kings, the Messiah is here. And they were rebuking the children. If I'm remembering correctly, then Jesus turned and said, if they did not praise me, if they did not cry out, then the stones and the rocks would cry out. The Messiah is here. So, God controls nature. God could make the stones into children of Abraham if He wanted to. But I think He's also here probably projecting the idea that, as I said, don't just think that because you're Jew, Jewish, you get to go to the kingdom. He's communicating the idea God is going to let Gentiles into the kingdom, even though you look at them as stones, as irrelevant, as unworthy. Now, I read this week that often back in those days when a person who was not a Jew converted to the Jewish religion and became their new convert, they say that they would be baptized as a sign of showing they have now converted to Judaism. So the Jew who sits back and sees John saying, don't say, 
oh, I'm Abraham's child. I'm good. He says, no, you have to repent and you have to be baptized and you have to say, I am a sinner in need of a savior. They would be offended and think, don't tell me I have to do what a non-Jewish convert does. I'm a Jew. I'm okay. But John the Baptist and Jesus and then the Apostle Paul continued to preach the message, you are not going to be in the kingdom of God just because you're a Jew, but God has opened wide the door to the Gentiles and receives them, and they can come be part of the kingdom of God just as much as you can be. And in Acts chapter 15, Peter, after his encounter with Cornelius, who was not a Jew, when Cornelius and all his house got saved, and God, remember, he showed Peter the vision where all these unclean animals came down in a blanket, and God said in a vision to Peter, Arise and eat. And Peter says, Not so, Lord, as Peter was wont to do. He argued with God himself. Not so, Lord, I know better than you. I'm a Jew. I've never eaten an unclean animal. But Jesus was trying to tell him through this illustration of eating the animals that used to be unclean that the Gentile people were not to be looked at as unclean or as enemies, but that they were to be looked at now as the mission field. And when they got saved as brothers and sisters in Christ, all part of the same family. And Peter was telling the Jews there in Jerusalem, the council of Jews, the leadership of the church, what had happened. And he was trying to tell them, don't try and get new Gentile converts to be circumcised and keep the law and tell them you have to keep the law of Moses either to be saved or to be right with God. And Peter says in Acts chapter 15, for we believe that the same Lord is rich unto all that call upon him by faith, to Jew and to Gentile alike. Okay, I'm trying to be done early this morning and give us some announcements here at the end. We're going to look at this passage in Romans chapter 4 that's a little bit lengthy, and I'm going to try to read it straight through and see the truth that is communicated. Abraham is not just the father of the Jewish nation. He's the father of all who come to God through faith. For as we'll see quoted, God told Abraham, you're going to have a child, and Abraham believed it by faith. And the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was not made righteous by offering Isaac to God or being prepared to do so, but rather those good works he did illustrated that he had faith and God says it was the faith of Abraham that God looked and said, I will count that for righteousness. And when the Messiah does come and sheds his blood, pays for your sins, rises again, it will be completed. But I'm looking to your faith in the Old Testament that looks forward to the Messiah. And I count it to you for righteousness the same way that now we look back to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross by faith and God counts it to us for righteousness. God's record is made His. And what you will see illustrated through these verses are the song that if you're like me, you might have sang in Sunday school. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and then you do all of those weird motions. It comes from the message in Romans chapter 4. Let's read it here. For the promise that he should be made heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. 
For where no law is, there is no transgression. What does the law do? It simply brings about wrath. It brings about knowledge of sin. It tells you you can't keep the law. You're a sinner and you must seek God. That's the whole point of the law. Paul said it was a schoolmaster to bring me to Christ. Paul said, I see the law of God and the law of God was not bad. It was not evil, but it showed me that I was bad. It showed me that I was evil. It was my teacher to bring me to repentance. And now that we've come to Christ, Paul says we're no longer under a schoolmaster. So don't get caught up in thinking we have to keep the Old Testament law. That was given to the Jews for the purpose of teaching them and all the church to come after them and all the world to come after them. You cannot be saved by keeping this law. You are a sinner. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is the faith of Abraham, who is what? The father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope, speaking of Abraham, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in what? In faith giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform what God had promised. Abraham said, I believe by faith God is able to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. To impute righteousness means that God looked at Abraham and said, I know you're not righteous, but I see your faith. I receive your faith and I'm going to take my righteousness and impute it to you, give it to you and put it to your record. And that's the gospel. Not the same way Abraham did, but it's the same gospel now clearly spelled out in the New Testament. We look at the cross and we say, Jesus, I believe in you as God. I believe in your sacrifice. You paid for my sins and by faith I receive it. And God looks and says, I am pleased with your faith. And on judgment day, when we stand before the throne, the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be imputed to us in our record. And we will be judged, praise God, not for what we have done, but we'll receive the grace of God as His righteousness will cover our sins. Praise God. Now it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him. Okay, Not just for Abraham was this given, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on Him that raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead. How do we get righteousness imputed to us? Through believing on Jesus Christ who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Let's move quickly here through the rest of this chapter. Verse number 9, okay, that spoke of Abraham and how God will raise up more children unto Abraham out of the stones if the Jews reject him. Verse 10, And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. The word there, unto, 
means motion towards or nearness at. So when he says the, the axe is laid unto the root of the tree, he's either saying it's right nearby it or it's already in motion. The judgment is coming. Verse 10 introduces the idea of fire as associated with God's judgment and will be repeated here throughout the next three verses. Verse 11, John says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. And just again to give the note that the Greek word for baptized means literally to immerse. That's why we believe in baptism by immersion. Strong's Concordance says next to the Greek word that underlies baptism to make whelmed. In other words, to overwhelmed, to immerse. That's what it means when we see it in the Bible. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I. And John again humbles himself and points toward God to say, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John turns and says one of the most humbling things he could say. He says when the Messiah comes, he is so great compared to me, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals around if you know anything about that time period or that culture, the, the feet and the, the soles of the sandals would be looked at as the dirtiest part, as one of the most menial things you could do. I heard this week that the slave, the lowliest slave, would be given the job of taking the master's sandals when he came and returned home, taking them away, putting them away. And then we know that through the disciples... And the record in the Gospels that it was a common courtesy to give people water to wash their feet when they came into your house because they were walking around the Middle East in sandals. Their feet were dirty and dusty and they needed to be cleaned. If you remember years ago, President Bush was in Iraq at a press conference and a man who was angry had prepared to protest and he took off one at a time, he threw a shoe at him and then he threw the other shoe at him. And the video is funny where he just kind of ducks out of the way and it goes flying by his head. But in the Middle East, if they want to communicate disrespect, they take off their shoe and they stomp it on something. You, you'll see that on a video. If they want to protest America, they'll do it on a flag or something like that. But John says, Jesus is so great compared to me, I'm not even worthy to carry his dirty sandals around. That's how great he is. I'm baptizing you with water unto repentance. But when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Again, to baptize, the word baptized is used for more than just water baptism. It's talking about immersion. And he's saying if you repent and believe in the Messiah, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. That will be given on the day of Pentecost. And despite some disagreement over what he means by also with fire, I think it's pretty clear from the context. He's making the distinction and the division. If you repent, you get the Holy Ghost. If you refuse to repent, you get the fire of judgment. Some of the charismatics and different people look to that verse and they say the fire is talking about like a second experience after salvation and you have to call upon him to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then to get the 